Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Food insecurity is a pressing issue nationwide, particularly in Georgia, where one out of every four children live in food-insecure households. It's a dire picture for seniors, too. The latest estimates put Georgia in the top 10 worst states for food insecurity among aging populations. This month, GPB News is looking into creative local solutions to to food access in a series called Full Plates, How Georgia Fights Hunger. Well, we're hearing those stories and inviting reporters who contributed to the series to give us some background and some context. Josephine Bennett is assistant news director for GPB News. She found that Georgia is the first in the country to try an innovative approach to addressing hunger among seniors. And she's joining us from our Macon Bureau. Josephine, welcome. Good morning, Virginia. Well, good morning. So senior hunger, why did you select this particular topic? Well, when we decided to do a series focused on food access, I tried to come up with a topic we had not reported on. And that was a challenge because we've done several stories around food and food access. But as the child of an elderly parent, my mom is 94, I wondered how much of a problem senior hunger might be in Georgia. As a child of the 70s, I've never forgotten seeing public service announcements highlighting the problem of senior hunger. So I started looking into it. How prevalent is hunger among seniors here in Georgia? Well, as it turns out, around 300,000 senior citizens in Georgia are hungry. While help is available at senior centers around the state, only one-tenth of people go to them. Some don't know they exist, and others don't know how to connect with services where they live. They're really an incredible resource that not enough people are taking advantage of. So those 300,000 senior citizens in Georgia hungry, making it the ninth worst in the country when it comes to senior hunger. Why is that? Well, one of the number one risks for seniors being so-called food insecure is poverty. And Georgia has many people living in poverty. Race also plays a part. While 16% of white people are are considered food insecure, that number more than doubles for African Americans and Hispanics. And all but one of the top 10 states for senior hunger are in the South and Midwest. There's more food deserts here, meaning people can't get to a grocery store. And that has indications for people's health. They might be consuming enough calories, but they're not getting proper nutrition. So um, I might also point out that it's not always people living in poverty that are food insecure. Sometimes people have to pay for other things like medication, caring for grandchildren, home repairs, or some people even feed their pets before they feed themselves. Mm. Well, so in your reporting, you discovered that Georgia officials have been holding senior hunger summits, which developed into a statewide plan, which is explored in your story. So let's hear that story now. Three to four days a week, Ernestine Mims comes to the senior center in Twiggs County to eat lunch with her friends. I laugh and talk and I can go today on, don't think about nothing, no pains or nothing. And when I come up here, I make me forget about it. It's just like a home away from home. But she says if she were home, she'd be having a sandwich. But here, it's salad, corn, chili, milk, apple pie, and company. Research shows that when seniors eat together, they are more likely to finish their meal. 
It's a scene playing out in more than 200 centers across the state and a lifeline for older people who may not have enough to eat. The Tweaks County program serves those as young as 62 and as old as 97. Director Denise Goodman says older people face a multitude of barriers when it comes to getting food. You're having to choose sometimes between, okay, medicine or food. And so sometimes you can't eat a balanced diet because your income's limited. Because Twiggs County is rural, it's hard to get around, and there's just one grocery store. It's issues like this that prompted Georgia to create the nation's very first state-level plan for senior hunger. While other states include senior hunger in their plans on aging, they don't address it specifically. The plan is a year old and points out that Georgia's population is aging and safety nets like Social Security often fall short. Cost of living has skyrocketed well beyond what the structure of the support systems that are in play. Um, and then at the same time, you have to look at the fact that seniors are living longer. That's Tematope A. Walker. She's the state's senior hunger nutrition coordinator with Georgia's Department of Human Services and tasked with implementing the plan. It divides the state into 12 regions, with each one forming a coalition made up of service providers, nonprofits, and grocery stores. But it's different depending on where you live. We're really talking about the urban and rural divide um, and saying, okay, some strategies will work across both areas, but some things will be strategic to a particular area. In Twix County, that's a community garden, meals, transportation, and helping people who qualify for food stamps get them, even though the benefits are small. In some cases, just $15 a month. Results from the first year of the plan are just coming in. Meanwhile, Walker does know that only one-tenth of Georgia's elderly go to senior centers. She hopes more people will discover them. Sometimes it's when you get the buy-in of the senior who then in turn will tell another senior about how impactful something is that you really have a breakthrough. And one of those cheerleaders is 81-year-old Cora Banks. That's nice being, being with somebody. I don't like to sit home. Ain't nobody going to be there with me. I enjoy sitting there eating with them. Yes, I do. Sure do. Because when seniors eat together, their health can be as good as their company. For GPB News, I'm Josephine Bennett in Macon. <laughs> and Josephine is joining us now from our Macon Bureau, telling us a little bit about her story, some background for that Full Plate series story. You talked a little bit about the barriers seniors face when it comes to food access and eating, awareness, transportation. Did you learn anything that really surprised you? Well, one thing that I never would have thought about is that seniors often have dental issues um, and inability to afford dental care, which makes the very act of eating difficult. And as I said in the piece, food stamps, applying for them is easy, but sometimes they're too embarrassed to ask. And then some people are just physically unable to prepare meals and suffer from memory loss, making meal preparation next to impossible and sometimes dangerous. And then people live alone. This, this puts the more at risk uh, for getting sick. Senior hunger, it's expensive. It costs around $130 billion a year nationwide due to medical issues stemming from hunger. Um, a couple other things, the recession. Between 2007 and 2014, a lot of senior citizens lost income during the downturn. And 
there's no way to make that income up. And, and of course, the number of senior citizens, it's only growing. Hmm. As you reported in your piece, Georgia is the first state in the country to have a plan for senior hunger. How did this come about and what is actually in it? Well, Georgia started out in 2016 with senior hunger summits, and these grew out of a push from then-Governor Nathan Deal and his wife Sandra to address the problem of senior hunger after hearing that ninth-from-the-bottom statistic about Georgia, and they became committed to doing something to change that. That's where the state plan began to take shape through the Department of Human Services. They've also created a position within the department that uh, focuses on senior hunger, and that's Tematope Walker, and her sole focus is this issue. Um, the interesting thing is that they broke up the state into 12 regional commissions, and each one will look at hunger, factoring in where they live, what unique challenges and opportunities present themselves. For instance, Twiggs County, where I visited, is vastly different than, let's say, Fulton County up in Atlanta. What works for one place might not work for another. And the plan addresses five specific areas including today's seniors, who are they, health impact of senior hunger, food access, food waste and reclamation, uh, there's a lot of that, and meeting the community's needs. Josephine, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, so we just heard about how Georgia is trying to feed its older citizens, but of course, hunger affects younger Georgians too. And as we all know, kids can be picky eaters, and that can be a real problem in the nation's school cafeterias, where students waste five million dollars worth of food they get in lunch every day. Now, a Georgia problem program is working to collect some of the food that kids don't want and steer it toward hungry kids who need it. GBB's Grant Blankenship reports. Lynn Janes knows she's responsible for some hungry kids. We have a lot of students who the only times that they really get a full solid meal is here at school. Janes is the principal at International Studies Elementary Charter School in Albany. That's one of the 1,500 or so schools in Georgia where, because they don't have much money, students qualify for either low-cost or free lunches. Jane says when she began working here, it was easy to spot the kids in the cafeteria who weren't getting enough to eat at home. And that was very concerning to me as, as an elementary principal, um, or just as a human being really, to see that some of our students would just were so hungry they would scarf the food down, and other students who would just toss things away. The fact that good food was going to waste bothered Albany resident and former teacher Kathy Revel too. So she wanted to do something about it. It was laid on my heart that it was something I needed to do. And I decided I was going to take it on and go with it. So last year, Kathy Rebel came to the school board with a plan. Collect cafeteria food before it got to the trash can, then save it to send home with hungry kids on the weekend. Principal Janes loved what she heard. The idea got the green light. And since then, Kathy Rebel has been hard at work at International Studies and nine other Albany schools. We've saved 12 tons out of the landfill. That was as of February, and that was not when we had all 10 schools up and running. What Revel launched in Albany is the chapter of the program called Helping Hands Ending Hunger, and it works like this. Once lunch is over, students have to pass two of their classmates who look over their trays for any unopened food that came from the lunch line. Did you drink your slushie? I didn't drink that. That food gets set aside. 
It's stored in a closet that's been repurposed with freezers and coolers. We freeze the peanut butter and jelly. And at the end of the week, the food's packed in insulated backpacks for the kids to take home. A typical backpack will have about a gallon of milk and half cup servings, plus things like prepackaged sandwiches, cheese, and fruit. In six months, the program has redirected a little over 21,000 meals in Doherty County. While Revel runs the Albany chapter of Helping Hands, the program at large was founded by Carla Harward and her daughter Sophie. They were inspired by a family in their northwest Georgia town who'd been spotted looking for food in the trash after a football game. I had no idea that, you know, we would even be talking about kids that had nothing to eat, you know, anywhere in the United States. Before they could launch their plan, attorney Carla Harward had to convince the State Department of Health they would not violate Georgia food safety rules. She succeeded and now has what she says is a turnkey guidebook for volunteers to set up food collection at any school. We have a supply list of equipment that each school should have so that they can follow these food safety uh, protocols. Harvard says you need $2,000 for the equipment plus volunteers like Kathy Revel. So far, the program has put together about 300,000 meals in 25 Georgia schools over the last two years. Back in the cafeteria at International Studies Charter in Albany, student teacher Amber Shaw is with her kindergarten students at lunch. Some of them will have backpacks of food to take home later today. And for Shaw, that means less worry between now and Monday. Because you love these kids, you know, they're your kids. So to know that they're okay, if they're going home okay, it makes me okay. And if the kids start next week less hungry, it makes the job of teaching them that much easier, too. For GPB News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Albany. Now you can listen for more stories from GPB series Full Plates, which is going on now. They are also at gpbnews.org. And we heard just there, some people have no idea that there are others who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Are you aware of how many people, children, seniors, anyone, are food insecure? You can join our conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. We're at Twitter at OSD Talk. We're going to continue our series on Full Plates with an innovative app for finding food when you need it. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. According to the Georgia Food Bank Association, one in six Georgians is food insecure, meaning they don't know how or where they will get their next meal. Well, this week, GPB News is reporting on new approaches to food access. And now we're turning to a young Georgian who works on solutions around the country. Jack Griffin created the Food Finder app while a high school student in Duluth. The recent college graduate has just moved back to his hometown and joins me in the studio. Jack, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. How did you become interested in food access as a sophomore in high school? Yeah, well, the uh, story of the accidental entrepreneur really holds true for me. Um, Yeah, more than six years ago, uh, like all the cool kids, I was watching 60 Minutes uh, before school (laughs) one Sunday night. And this was a story that showed how difficult life really was for kids and families who were hungry. Mm. Um, So that's when the light bulb didn't go off immediately. I just knew that, you know, I was fired up, wanted to help out in my community uh, in Gwinnett County. But when I went to, uh, you know, Google, the only place I knew where to search for um, to find a place to volunteer at or donate to, that's when I realized how difficult it really was to find Um, food pantries and food assistance programs. Well, what did you find when you Googled? What were you Googling? Yeah, um, just food pantry near me, um, places in Gwinnett County. And that's when I realized that Google's a lot better at pointing you to restaurants than it is for food pantries because, you know, the smallest organizations out there, the ones doing really great work, are the ones where you can get help um, if you are food insecure. Um, But at the same time, a lot of these places aren't... uh, 
you know, really SEO wizards. Mm -hmm. um, so, so search engine optimizing. Yes. I just want to point that out yep. to, <laughs> to people who may not know your entrepreneurial language. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But then I, you know, I was a regular kid having this much trouble just finding when and where to show up. But what if I was someone who needed this help? Mm -hmm. And that didn't seem right to me. And then that's when I realized that maybe connecting the people who were looking for help with the places that offer it is a way that I could have a really strong impact. And that's something that you started working on. But back up just a bit. What did you learn about food access or lack thereof in your community at the time, Gwinnett County? Yeah. Um, early on, talking to teachers, the homeless coordinator for my county school system, it was all fascinating and kind of heartbreaking. Mm. Um, we were talking about my school, Peachtree Ridge, was actually one of the best um, in uh, high schools in the county in terms of the lowest percentage of kids on free introduced lunch. But when I asked my uh, assistant principal how many kids in the school were um, enrolled, she said a thousand. And it was really sh showcased the invisibility of the problem. You know, all I see are my friends and classmates walking down the halls. A thousand and, students are hungry. Yep. And that was about a third. Um, and one out of every three is sort of a mind-boggling number. And it continues to sort of even be more shocking when you realize that there were plenty of schools in the same, you know, 10 or 15 minutes down the road that had 90-plus percent enrollment mm. in food assistance programs. So first, you were looking for volunteer opportunities with a food pantry. Did you find many in Duluth? Yeah, we found a couple. Um, great organizations um, run out of faith-based institutions, uh, food pantry-specific uh, programs that we wanted to help out at. Um, but again, it was just the information was less, was not nearly as accessible as I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. um, and when I came to know that doing more research as to the role technology could play, I found that the people actually seeking this help for food were often a lot more tech savvy than the places that offer it because of how important of a lifeline smartphones are for you know people who this is their computer, it's their only way to get in touch with their families when they're not in the same building. Mm -hmm. um, so understanding how many people were searching for this help online was a big role in, you know, not that I wanted to create an app and trying to, you know, attach a problem to solve. It was finding that we know that there's a problem in seeking this help and there's this information gap. Technology, it might actually be the best way to solve that and uh, bridge that divide. So you founded the Food Finder app to help people locate food assistance in mm -hmm. their neighborhoods. Where did you even begin? Were you tech savvy yourself? <laughs> no, I was not the one slinging lines of code um, behind the app. I was really the, I had the idea. I wanted to build it however I could. Um, worked with a great company um, in 2014 in Atlanta to build it, uh, but started off by, you know, really brute forcing it, doing every search term possible, doing every means we could to try and find these assistance programs using traditional means. And it took a month to find 100 or so uh, in the Gwinnett County and surrounding areas. And it just, it was, we've gotten a lot better since then, but it really, even how we had to do it ourselves at the beginning sort of spoke to how um, you know, outdated or uh, unreliable mm -hmm. a lot of the existing information was because, you know, it's in a resource-constrained environment. It's really right, tough. Right, they're to, focused on something oh, else. Mm -hmm, they have so much to focus on with such, you know, small budgets, 100% volunteer run. It's, they just don't have enough time in the day. So then that's where us as this being our sole focus of making sure this information on when and where to get help is known, that's where we can pick up the slack 
uh, to help not only food insecure families, but also the providers doing really amazing work already. Did you have to pay the people doing the code? Yeah, um, we actually launched uh, a crowdfunding campaign uh, about five years ago um, on Indiegogo, raised about $6,000 of a $5,000 goal, and that got our uh, V1 of the website uh, launched, and we just had the five-year anniversary of our website's creation yesterday. Wow. So how many people are you reaching? Do you know? Yes. Um, we use analytics to track all that. Um, now that we service uh, all across the country, uh, making sure people can find uh, help. We've now also just hit a big milestone in serving our 75,000th uh, user, uh, wow. making sure we can help them find help nearby. And how many uh, food assistance locations do you have uh, available on the app? Yeah, started with just a couple dozen in Gwinnett uh, five years ago, and now we've since grown to include 45,000 wow. food assistance programs in all 50 states. Across the country. Well, you said that it was hard to find information on food assistance and mm -hmm. other social services online, so how did you get that and turn it into Food Finder? Yeah, the way that we really wanted to bring it to scale um, so we can handle it. Not, not that we need to reach out to all 45,000 because that's not the most feasible thing in the world. We started working with regional food banks um, as the ones that are actually the distributors to a lot of the local food pantries and uh, churches and all that who give out the food on the front lines. So you know, here in Atlanta, we have the Atlanta Community Food Bank, which is a terrific organization, working with other Feeding America food banks and their network um, that were larger organizations, uh, basically partnering with them to get their list of the partner agencies that they served was a great way that we could start to expand our uh, service map and our footprint to be able to help uh, countless more families in countless more towns and cities across the country. So let's talk about how Food Finder actually works because, you know, somebody online right mm -hmm. now might be able to look. And I would recommend looking for Food Finder GA. That's mm -hmm. how I found it more easily. Mm -hmm. What does it do? What 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 happens? Yeah. Uh, URL today is foodfinder.us. So uh, pretty simple. Um, and it's really, again, simple is really the name of the game. Um, as soon as you open the website or open the phone uh, or open the mobile app on your phone, it defaults to ask for your current location. Um, and that's all we need. Um, yeah, I noticed that. Mm -hmm. I signed on to the app. It didn't ask for a login, anything mm -hmm. like that. Why not? That exactly. must be by design. It is exactly by design. We wanted to make this as hoop-free uh, a platform to use as possible. There's no personal information, no login. We wanted to maintain the privacy and dignity of the user as much as possible um, so that anyone can feel comfortable. Uh, very clean maps design. As soon as you open it, you basically see a map of two things, where your current location is and where all the nearest food pantries and food assistance programs are near you mm -hmm. on a really recognizable, you know, Google Maps-esque display. Um, as soon as you tap on the uh, pin, tap on the name of a resource, you're taken to our final information screen, which gives you you know, street address, hours of operation, contact information, what you need to bring to that location in order to receive assistance, all this really actionable uh, data that is so often sort of lost in the fray mm -hmm. if you just go to traditional search engines. But this is this is what you need, and this is what you uh, need to know in order to really get help for you and your family. And our goal is to just give that as respectfully and uh, easily as possible to the user. How much of your target population do you imagine, or I'm sure you've done mm -hmm. analytics on this kind of thing, actually use smartphones? Yeah, that's a great question. It's uh, probably been asked that a uh, number of times, you know, in thousands. But mm -hmm. um, it's surprisingly high. 
Um, the qualitative answer to that is if you ask anyone working in a food pantry that they know, volunteer or otherwise, the vast majority of visitors have smartphones. And it's, you know, it's not an iPhone 10 type deal, uh, but it is really, you know, really great smartphones that are available for free um, through the government assistance or for under $10. Um, and that's what a lot of people don't realize, but it's so important as technology. Uh, but in terms of how many people are seeking this information, uh, while hunger and food insecurity has decreased in America as the economy has got better since 20. 2015 uh, by 7%. Searches on Google for food pantries near uh, near the people searching have increased 544% to 2.6 million in 2018 alone. Um, And that's just a huge upsurge of the number of people seeking this information. Um, So when this many people are looking for this kind of help, then the least we can do is offer a really great, really uh, private and respectful solution that can get them the help that they're looking for. My guest is Jack Griffin. He's a Duluth native and recent college graduate and founder of the Food Finder app, which helps people find food pantries, food assistance, other social services. Well, this launched as a website in 2014 with a map of more than 50 food pantries, as you said, now at 45,000. Then you moved to Michigan for college. So what kind of parallels did you see between food insecurity in Metro Atlanta and in Ann Arbor, where where you went to school near Detroit? Yeah, Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, Ann Arbor was really fortunate. We had a major food bank um, less than a mile off of campus, um, and that serviced um, 100, 150 food pantries. Ann Arbor was uh, really well covered um, in terms of, you know, uh, programs that were helping the uh, community residents. But on the other hand, when you compare Atlanta to Detroit, uh, that was a very fascinating sort of uh, comparison because Atlanta is well covered. ACFB, the Atlanta Community Food Bank, does great work. Um, Detroit, on the other hand, was hit really hard um, during the financial crisis. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize is that, that Detroit is huge geographically. It's the largest city uh, by square miles in the country. Uh, at the same time, food deserts um, often correspond to not even uh, not having grocery stores, but also not having food assistance programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though Detroit is fully covered by Food Finder, the map, because you can get that information visually, start to learn new things. And through the, our map, you see that there's a lot of empty space um, in Detroit compared to Atlanta because of how huge the city is and often, you know, how there aren't as many places offering up food to the people, even though the need might be very great. Earlier this month, you met with the Secretary of Agriculture, former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue, to explore how Food Finder and other nonprofits can work with the federal mm-hmm. government to alleviate hunger. Any takeaways from that meeting you want to share with us? Yeah, no, that was a great meeting in D.C., had the nice uh, Georgia connection uh, between the two of us. Um, but that was me and about seven other nonprofit uh, hunger-related leaders from across the country uh, talking about how we can best Uh, coordinate efforts with the federal government. And we all wanted to make sure that the goal um, of all of this is to make sure that we can lift people out of food insecurity into self-sufficiency. So that takes into taking a lot of effort up front to be thoughtful um, as to how we can address childhood hunger, senior hunger, uh, people who face transportation um, as a barrier to accessing the help. Uh, Even if they know where to go, how do they get there? And all the logistics of that. Um, And uh, Secretary Perdue was really uh, conscientious of how saying that us as uh, sort of uh, nonprofits and separate entities outside the government, you know, we are 
just faster. We're more agile. We can do things that the federal government can't, and the vice versa. Uh, the opposite is true as well. Um, so when we have these unique specialties of um, being able to scale, being able to help people across the country, where the government has so many resources and already does so much to spend billions of dollars to help food insecure users, then working together, we can really move the needle and hopefully make a transformative impact in the landscape. Well, Jack Griffin, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. He's the Duluth native and Food Finder app founder, Jack Griffin. You can find more on the app at gpbnews.org. Nearly half of American college students have a hard time getting enough healthy food. At the University of Georgia, students applied for a grant to expand the reach of a food pantry on campus. And that's where Ava Parisi works. She leads the tour of the program in this audio postcard from GPB's Ellen Eldridge. There's a resource here on campus to help provide food to students in need so that they have kind of one less worry on their plate so that they can really focus on school your first time coming to the pantry, basically what you'll do is the volunteers will explain to you. You just sign in on the tablet and you put in your student ID number and you fill out a quick survey and then you just kind of take whatever you want and you're allowed to head out. We're going to be harvesting kale, kohlrabi, some fennel, cilantro. We've also started working with Garden here on campus to get fresh produce weekly as well, which is super awesome because we've had a lot of students request fresh produce. And so now Garden is being able to make that happen for us, which we're really grateful for. John McGinnis, a student worker at Garden. I'm a biology major with a horticulture minor. I'm Lily Dabbs. I'm a geography major in urban metropolitan studies, and I'm a farm intern and a member of the U Garden Club. U Garden started out about like nine or ten years ago. Um, the main two missions that U Garden has is to give back to the community by providing produce to them, and it also serves as a teaching farm. We're just prepping harvest. Um, we're getting ready to sanitize our produce bins and our washing bins. So this is our bleach mix. It's just a 10% um, bleach. Um, and we only harvest in these green bins. Four boxes at the end are used for the club. And then they're also part of a class project where they build the box and then maintain them throughout the semester. Once we finish up with the harvesting, we have to do the basic washing, getting it ready for you know the basic person to eat, get all the dirt out, all that good stuff. And then once that's ready, then we can bring the stuff over to the food pantry or whoever we're delivering the produce to. With the food pantry, when that came along, uh, that was brought up by David Burley, our advisor. He had the idea of this grant, which ties back to our mission with giving back to the community, more specifically the students in this case. That grant, we were able to provide uh, money for a new refrigerator for the food pantry located on campus. It's beautiful, and now we get the fresh produce every week, so it's been seriously so pivotal for the pantry to be able to kind of expand its resources and provide for students in a better way. 
Those were UGA students and vegetable farmers John McGinnis and Lily Dabbs. We also heard from Ava Parisi of the UGA Student Food Pantry. They were all talking about how they work together to feed students. Now, coming up, we've got a public art project bringing some prominent Atlanta citizens back to Auburn Avenue. We'll be hearing that story in just a minute. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. More than a century ago, Alonzo Franklin Herndon founded what would become Atlanta Life Insurance Company. A sharecropper and former slave, Herndon founded the business with a $140 investment. His sales staff went door to door from town to town in suits and ties, selling Atlanta Life Insurance to Southern black communities. A public art project called Windows Speak brings leaders of that institution back to the street. It's on display now at the original Atlanta Life Insurance office buildings on Auburn Avenue. Amalia Amaki curated the project. She's an artist, art historian, and writer, and joins me in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank well, you so much. I'm curious about this guy, the Atlanta Life founder, Alonzo Franklin Herndon. What was his background? Well, personally, what intrigues me about him is he always had a very strong business sense. Before Atlanta Life Insurance Company was founded, uh, he had a barbershop. But it was a it was a barbershop that, by today's standards, we would call uh, something of a, a um, almost a male spa salon. What I really like about Alonzo Herndon is he always thought big, uh, regardless of his modest beginnings. He was a man of vision, and he always thought big, and he knew if there was a gap in services. For African Americans, there was an opportunity, and and he saw it. I think not just as a way to financially take care of himself and his family, but it was a way of being a contributing community member. So, how did he come from barber to life insurance? I think he saw a void. There was a void there. That gap you mentioned. That gap, mm-hmm. and he knew there was a a relatively active, vibrant, thriving black community in Atlanta, and particularly in Fourth Ward. And and as I said, I think he thought beyond just the business advantages of it. Here's a here's a community that he can contribute to making even more vibrant, even more economically stable. Uh, he's building this company at a time when money in Fourth Ward would circulate in Fourth Ward at least six times mm-hmm. before it went outside of that community. Which has changed dramatically yes. since then. Yes. Well, what was? I mean, this is the turn of the century when mm-hmm. he f- started this business. Paint a picture of Auburn Avenue at that time. Well, Auburn at the time, it was already, already showing, as I call it, promise. Mm-hmm. Tremendous amount of promise. You had uh, beauty shops, you had restaurants, you had churches, and you had people that lived along the corridor. Uh, These were, for the most part, people who were either uh, educated or made certain that their children were. Mm -hmm. So you had a certain attitude on the street, 
And it's not a surprise to me that Fortune magazine called Auburn Avenue the richest black street in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he the first self-made millionaire first self-made in the black millionaire. community. Right. Yes. Well, they, but they suffered some setbacks. This was in 1906 when yeah. the offices of Atlanta Life were destroyed Story. in the Atlanta race riots. What was going on? Well, to candidly put it, Georgia is still Georgia, and and at this time, and and there is uh, some animosity. I think it's the best word to but use. Especially there, there was a growing black Be- middle class because there was this this growing black middle class, and you had in that community you had per capita incomes that exceeded those of some of the communities that were all white. Mm-hmm. So there, there there, was some concern about that. And I think because uh, Auburn was so strategically located, you know, Auburn is just in the shadows of downtown. So it, it was not a community that could be dismissed or overlooked. Uh, so there, there were there were things already in place. The there, there was Atlanta was playing a critical part in the conversations that led to the evolution of the NAACP through leaders like people like Herndon. Uh, Atlanta was a participant, I would say, a voice. There were voices that came out of of this community that were on the forefront of, of saying some some kind of radical things about what needed to be done in 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 the face of of denials and and oppression and that sort of thing and I and I think because of the uh, even the presence of the Atlanta University Center and the voices that were coming out of that center, some of whom lived in that district. Uh, it was it was not a community that was taken lightly by this time. And I think it was becoming a force in America. Well, and that's the thing there. And during mm-hmm. that riot, the main target was not people, but property, property. which mm-hmm. is very telling. But at the time, also, the Atlanta Life website now says that Herndon salesmen were possibly the only black men wearing suits and ties around the South at the time. In Atlanta, they certainly were, but maybe not out in the rest of the countryside, which were his customers. What kind of message was he wanting to send? Well, Herndon, Alonzo and Norris, they were always what we call classy or snappy dressers. And they very much advanced this idea that they were not just businessmen, but that they were of the highest profession of businessmen. And this was something that really carried over throughout the African-American community. You had uh, musicians performing in tuxedos. And so this was this was kind of a way of saying, you know, we are a certain kind of people, despite you know, the Jim Crow laws and, and the situations in our communities, we are a certain kind of people. And he, he very much advanced that for many, many years, Atlanta life salesmen were required to be well-dressed. I'm speaking with Amalia Amaki. She's an artist, an art historian, writer, and now curator of the Window Speak Project, which mm-hmm. is a public photography and history exhibit on Auburn Avenue. If we walk past the original Atlanta Life building mm-hmm. on Auburn Avenue right now, what or who will we see? Well, you will you will see the first three presidents: uh, the the founder Alonzo Herndon, his son, 
and uh, Jesse Hill. And they are really the rocks of the of the leadership foundation of that of that company. There's also uh, the face of which I think it's is critical. There's the face of Henrietta Antonine. Henrietta Antonine is the only face that's on that uh, presentation that's still with us. But here is a woman who who started out, I believe, as a clerk and worked her way up to be uh, vice president and head of public relations and was essentially the right arm of Jesse Hill. He entrusted her to do the programs that he wanted to advance. 46-year history with that company. It's, that's a that's an amazing story. She, by the way, when she saw the windows, uh, she teared up. She literally teared up. She said, "You know, this is this is a very emotional moment for me well, to see these people who she worked with." Yes, and this is a permanent part of the facade now yeah. that you've done. The exhibit is called "Windows Speak." Mm-hmm. What are they saying, or or what do you what do you want well, them to say to you? You know, I wanted faces in those windows metaphorically for a number of reasons. Number one, I wanted people to, whether they're driving by or walking by, to see those faces and remember what that company was, what it meant to Auburn Avenue, what it meant to Atlanta, what it meant to the uh, community that's the Auburn District, what it meant to what was known as Fourth Ward at the time that, that the buildings were erected, but also to think about what they represent collectively. They they represented uh, a thriving African-American community that really said to the world, if left alone to do our work, we do it as well as anyone else. And And I also think that metaphorically, they are reminders that the roots of that place is something that was a, it, it wasn't just a business, it was a campus. Herndon Plaza was a campus. Uh, they had all sorts of social events, civic events, political events that they opened their doors to and, and welcomed the community in, in to, to sort of partner with them and, and, and make the community stronger, make the community more open, and make the community a community that had a voice. So it, it represents a lot. I also wanted faces because I wanted to metaphorically say, you know, we're we're looking out. We're looking out because uh, the latest building in the plaza no longer belongs to Atlanta Life. It no longer belongs to uh, an, the Auburn preservation efforts. But those faces are looking out and still looking out for that building. So metaphorically, I think they mean a lot. That community, that street, mm-hmm. that corridor uh, has taken some hits yes. in, in recent decades, especially after integration when people sort of moved out because they could. The Atlanta Life itself moved in 2012, sold its its headquarters on Auburn Avenue and moved to 191 Peach Street, mm-hmm. just, just around the corner, around the corner. pretty <laughs> much. But it was really an important place. Earlier this month, Governor Brian Kemp signed into law new protections for Confederate monuments. Do you think there are protections needed for monuments to black and civil rights history as well? Absolutely. And the issue I have with with Mr. Kemp in, in efforts like that is 
there are African-Americans whose existence in this state precede the Civil War as well. And those individuals are citizens of this state and should be respected equally. Uh, Confederate, Confederate imagery came at a certain time in our history. It's not in the roots of the beginning of the state of Georgia, and he needs to be educated to that. In no uncertain terms yes, there. So why put this on Auburn Avenue? We see now there's a beautiful mm -hmm. uh, Atlanta in the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968, stretching across miles, right. east and west side of the Beltline. It's the longest outdoor exhibition on civil and human rights history in the U.S. Amazing pictures and a vivid mm -hmm. portrait. Why put window speak on Auburn Avenue? Because Auburn is still an important point of beginning for a lot of things that happened in that civil rights era. Um, I, I wonder how effective Atlanta participation would have been in the civil rights era if not for the groundwork that was firmly established along Auburn Avenue. And I think that's why there is a very serious effort now for those of us who, who respect that history and who are learning it or relearning it uh, to do something about what's happening on Auburn Avenue. It, and it's not just important as a street for African-Americans. It's really important as a street for the city of Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta, as a city, I think, benefits from knowing this history. And and one of the reasons that I think it's important that that uh, Sweet Auburn Works and, and other organizations are working so hard to preserve and, and, and sort of reiterate that history is we have generations of people who don't know it. They don't know how important that Carter has been historically to the city of Atlanta. Uh, they don't know it. And it's important to know that. And I, I believe that once that knowledge is more freely available, that people will come to understand there have been some tremendously important developments that occurred along that corridor that not only the city has benefited from, but the whole state of Georgia. Well, now we have little shops like the Four Keeps Bookshop yes. there on Auburn mm -hmm. Avenue. Young people kind of investing, putting their energy and money and time into recreating an atmosphere that people right. want to come to. And and that's the, you, you know, I think you've hit on it. It's, it's, it's doing things. Uh, the building for itself, you know, is brick and mortar. And that in and of itself is not exciting. But what people can do, and that's another reason why I wanted faces on those windows, is people that can put the sugar back in it and make it sweet again. It's, 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 it's people. And I'm hoping that the efforts of the organizations like Sweet Auburn Works will inspire uh, younger people to want to do exciting things. Uh, along that along that corridor, Auburn. I, I I don't remember this. I have to be honest. I don't remember this. But I grew up under the voice of parents who talked incessantly about what it was like on Auburn Avenue when they were young, and how sometimes you would just walk the street because you wanted to see 
who the performer was that was coming into town to to uh, sing at the Royal Peacock. Mm-hmm. You just wanted to get a glimpse of of of. Uh, um, I remember my dad saying, "You just want to get a glimpse of Jackie Wilson or 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 whoever was performing that night," and and you would go over to. Uh, uh, some of the restaurants just to see who was eating dinner there, and you know there was a a, a motor uh, motel uh, off Auburn, and that's where they had to stay because of segregation. And so he said, sometimes you just walk in as if you're going to uh, get a room just to see who was in there. So it it was a very exciting street life. Street life, yes. Yeah. Yes. It was it, animated. Yes. Well, short of you stopping people and tapping them on the shoulder, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think once once there is this investment in, in in the buildings, you know, having the buildings, that's that's the first step. Breathing life into the buildings, that's what I think is going to do it. And and I'm hoping that that's not too far in the future for for Auburn. Well, you're doing it right now. Uh, Thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. That is the artist, art historian, Mm -hmm. and curator Amalia Amaki. Her most recent project is the Windows Speak exhibit, and you can see it on display now at the Atlanta Life Building at 148 Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. And, of course, you can see pictures of it online. Mm -hmm. Go to gpbnews.org. That is it for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.